Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. It's great to be with you. Again, my name is Pastor Daniel. Um, you're going to get a lot of me today. Thanks for joining us in worship. I get the privilege of bringing the word today. and It's a great day to be together. Um, you know, one of the things that I love the most about, um, about gathering, about fellowship, is it, you know, there's a lot of times when we get together with one another outside of a Sunday morning. And that's fellowship. The Lord's in that place as well. The Lord blesses that. The Lord blesses our gathering and our sharing of meals and having fun going on a hike. But there's something about what happens here on a Sunday morning that's special. You know, not because there's anything particularly great about this building, not because the Holy Spirit's different on Sunday mornings than he is outside, but I think it's something in our hearts. When we gather in this space, we're opening ourselves and we're willing to allow the Lord to work in us in a special way. So thanks for joining us. It's going to be good. It's going to be a good sermon. I think, is that okay to say? (laughs) I mean, I say that because the Lord has really uh, been blessing my heart as I've pulled this together, as I've considered these, these words today. You know, and just as a way of orientation, we're continuing in our sermon called The Way, which is a series based on the things that Jesus did in the book of Matthew. Of course, reminding ourselves since, you know, the early part of the spring, we've been following the teaching of Christ in the book of Matthew through the Sermon on the Mount. And during those weeks, we learned much about what the kingdom of heaven is like, and then how we can learn to recognize it and participate it, participate in it. In other words, there's things about the kingdom that perhaps common culture, especially at the time of Jesus' teaching, just wasn't really being understood. That's not really the way life was being lived out. And so Jesus was describing things that sound great, and for us, all these years later, we think, yeah, of course, of course that makes sense. But for the people who were hearing Jesus, that wasn't necessarily common experience. We saw through many moments Jesus saying things like, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You know, there's a number of statements like this that Jesus gave during the Sermon on the Mount where he's referencing, these are, like, these are things that were quoted. These were common phrases. These were common uh, awarenesses of, of the people who were hearing. You've heard it said. He's teaching on these topics, but he's expanding upon them. To those listening, Jesus is encouraging them to open their minds and their hearts to the full revelation of God because that's exactly what Jesus is, isn't it? 
Our friend Brian Zahn said it like this. I quoted this a few weeks ago. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was a never, there's never been a time that God was not like Jesus. We have not always known what God is like, but now we do. I love that. I love that. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been following along with Jesus as he has come down now off the mountain and is demonstrating all the things that he taught about. But this is happening in very surprising and miraculous ways. For the first time, large crowds, more than just one or two, are beginning to see God's miraculous control over nature, over human afflictions, over our bodies, in a way that they've never experienced before. And at times, it probably looked and felt kind of scary <laughs> to see the Lord's power. But just as Jesus opened the minds of those hearing each, hearing him teach with statements like, you have heard it said, but now I say to you. Now Jesus is opening their eyes and seems to be saying, you thought you understood how nature and our bodies worked. Well, look at this. And revealing something different, something new. Well, as we prepare to hear the scripture for this morning, as we open our hearts to the Spirit and His work in us, let's pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We pray that you would open our eyes, that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose your way of wisdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. We'll be in the book of Matthew, chapter 8. You're welcome to turn there or to look there. It'll be on the screens for you as well. Matthew, chapter 28, will be in verse... Matthew, chapter 8, beginning in verse 23. This is a passage that I'm sure is familiar to many of you. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him up, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you afraid? Then he got up, rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were, were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You know, the sea has captured the imagination of humanity from the very beginning. It's just so big <laughs> and at times so wild. I don't know if you've had an experience like this, but you know, for me, many times, like when sitting on the beach, seeing the waves coming in, even if it's not particularly rough, but just seeing the movement of the ocean, or perhaps hearing the sound of crashing surf on the rocks of the waves, have you ever kind of let it begin to sink in just how big and powerful the ocean is? 
I mean, you can have a similar experience just when you're staring at the vastness of space, the stars above you, like when camping or something. But think about the size and the vastness of the sea. You know, many of us have held a gallon jug of milk or water, you know. We know about what that feels like. Maybe you've hefted one of those big five-gallon jugs of water, you know, the kind that you put on the water cooler. You felt what that feels like. Well, a gallon of water weighs eight pounds. Did you know that? Eight pounds. Five gallons is 40. Math. Some really smart people have put together some stats, uh, but basically uh, looking at breaking waves and what, you know, that force, that movement is like. You know, a typical little kind of California wave is around 250 pounds per square foot. So in a foot, you know, that force is about 250 pounds. Some of the largest waves recorded have exceeded 6,000 pounds of force in a square foot. Am I impressing you? <laughs> so taking it, you know, the example farther, you know, a, a big a 30-foot wave, you know, a Hawaii wave with like a 66-foot break. That's generating about 410 tons of force. Generated just by the movement of air across the ocean, the pull of the moon, the contours of the seafloor can generate 410 tons of force. You know, I was looking at all these stats and I couldn't resist. I started going down a rabbit trail and this is going to be a rabbit trail, but you'll go with it with me because I didn't really understand what 410 tons of force is or what it like, it's like too much. So 410 tons of, you know, of force, that's equal to 80,000 domestic short hair cats. If you took 80,000 cats, that would be 410 tons. You know, and cats have been known to survive falls of 65 feet, so cats are pretty cool. <laughs> you know, this is kind of going sideways, but themeasureofthings.com, themeasureofthings.com is a really fun website. You'd enjoy that. It has all of these things, like 410 tons of force is equal to 450 million jelly beans, in case you needed to know. But the point is this, the sea blows our imaginations wide open. It's powerful, and its scale makes us feel so tiny and insignificant. Now, Jesus' disciples were terrified because they were in the midst of a storm. And the Jewish people, in general, were not known as a seafaring people, like the Egyptians to their south or the Phoenicians to the north. Some of Jesus' disciples were way ahead of the others because they were fishermen, so they've likely been around boats and been on water before. But all the same, in most Jewish writing of the time and Jewish understanding, the sea represented dark and sometimes evil power. It was threatening. It was wild. The Jewish people feared and respected the power of the sea. And with a word... Jesus calms it. God's power and authority over nature is absolute. And Jesus has demonstrated this 
in the miracle that we're considering. You know, thinking about Old Testament writings, maybe you're already thinking ahead, but, you know, we've heard lots of stories of the sea. God parting the Red Sea for Moses and the entire nation of Israel as they escape from captivity in Egypt. God stopping the flow of the Jordan, one of the craziest things I can think of. God stopping the flow of a rushing river so that they would have dry ground to walk on. Jonah, probably the worst prophet ever, <laughs> getting stopped from running away from God by a storm. And you know, there's a lot of similarities between this story and the story of Jonah, and that's on purpose. You know, Jonah was asked by God to do something, and he didn't want to do it, so he was running the opposite direction. He's on a ship, and a storm kicks up. And he's asleep in the boat and not waking up. And the terrified sailors rush down and wake him up and say, what are we going to do? And he says, I don't know. Let's throw everything overboard. So they started emptying the ship of all the cargo and that didn't work. And, you know, I'm sure maybe Jonah's saying a silent prayer and that didn't work. But finally, as a last resort, he's like, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm in disobedience. Throw me over. And sure enough, the storm is stopped and Jonah's eaten by a fish. But Jesus, you know, asleep in the boat, is woken by panicked sailors. And all he says is, peace be still. You know, a long-standing Christian understanding is that there's two revelatory books available to mankind in understanding God. There's the book of scripture, and there's the book of nature. God reveals himself to us theologically, primarily through scripture, and he reveals himself to us experientially, primarily through nature. Now, of course, there's lots of overlap here, but I'm sure, even as I'm speaking, you're remembering moments in which the awe and wonder of God shook you to the core during an experience you were having in nature. Perhaps it was big and scary like a 410-ton wave, or perhaps it was gentle and quiet like the colors dancing across the clouds during a spectacular sunset. The storm that threatened Jesus and the disciples was not a result of Jesus' disobedience and running from God like Jonah. Rather, it was given as a sign, a testament of Jesus' authority over and power over all of creation. It did not take throwing Jesus overboard or even for Jesus to stop and pray to his Father, Lord, stop the storm. No, instead, Jesus simply himself speaks the word, and the threat is gone. All creation belongs to God, and he cares for it. When we consider miraculous moments in nature, God is there. When we consider the simple sustaining stillness of sun and breeze, God is there. You know, this miracle reinforces to the disciples and to us today that no matter how dramatic the storm, no matter how dramatic our circumstances, whether literal or symbolic, 
that God is there and exceedingly able to care for you. And yet seemingly, the point of this parable, the point of this, not parable, this miracle, is the lack of faith by the disciples. You of little faith, why were you afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. And they asked, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? You know, remember, the disciples have been with Jesus for a little while now. They've seen Jesus do some pretty awesome things. They've seen his power and authority through his speaking. They've seen his power and authority through healings and through interactions. They might still be in the process of fully grasping who it was that Jesus was, but no, they, they didn't forget. They were simply afraid. They were simply terrified. The things they knew, they fully knew, and the things they believed, they fully believed, and yet they were allowed to be overshadowed by their moment of panic, by their moment of fear. They had seen Jesus perform the miracles. They had heard him teach with authority. They had heard his own claims about himself. They had even seen the heavens open and the Spirit of God descend and rest upon Jesus like a dove. And they heard a voice say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. They knew it. And yet, in a moment of fear and panic, it escaped them. I think we can identify, can't we? I think we can recognize that we've been in that place before. You know, this phrase, you have little faith, it actually comes up a lot in Scripture. Jesus used it quite a bit in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is teaching about the trust, trusting in God and not worrying, sensing the hearts of those listening to him, he said, you know, God supplies the needs of the fields and the birds of the air. You can trust him to supply your needs. Don't worry, you of little faith. <laughs> In Matthew 14, as Jesus is walking on the water, in a moment of triumph, Peter says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come upon the water and walk to you. Jesus says, come. And then Peter steps out on the boat, is walking on water. And then all of a sudden, what is happening? I'm walking on water. He gets afraid and he starts to sink until the Lord rescues him. You of little faith. In Matthew 16, the disciples, having again forgotten their lunch, it's comical how many times the disciples forgot to bring lunch. You know, and this is after they've seen Jesus do the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 7,000. They've seen it happen a third time. They've forgotten their lunch, and they're worrying, they're debating, what are we going to do? Jesus overhears them and says, you of little faith. You know, we have a tendency to lose our minds when things get stressful. If these stories from Scripture, you know, are to serve examples, when the pressure is on, we forget what we know about God. That, that's when we need the Lord's loving rebuke, <laughs> the loving uh, reminder, loving encouragement, 
you have little faith, don't worry. I've got you taken care of. C.S. Lewis has a pair of chapters in one of my favorite books by him called Mere Christianity that covers this idea. The two chapters are aptly named Faith. Faith 1 and Faith 2. There's not a 1 and 2. There's just two chapters in a row that are named Faith. By the way, did you know that we have uh, an Emmaus lending library right out there in that Welcome Center? Curated by Jesse Metzger. It has lots of books that you know, folks here at Emmaus, especially the staff, have loved, and it's had a meaningful part of our story. There's a copy of Mere Christianity out there if you'd like to take it home. Anyway, uh, C.S. Lewis is saying, we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither our faith nor any other belief will automatically remain alive in our mind all the time. It must be fed. Even though we know who Jesus is, we know that he's true, that he's trustworthy, he's sovereign, he's compassionate, he's all-powerful. When we get scared, when we are hurt, when we're surprised, when we're caught in a lie, we're caught in sin, we panic. Will we cling to Jesus when we panic? Jesus wants more from our faith and more from us. Seemingly, he's encouraging the disciples over and over by saying, you have little faith. He's reminding them, in this moment, you should know something. And in this moment, you should be developing your, your muscles, your faith skills, your faith assurance a little bit more. You know, thinking back a couple weeks ago, when Jesus had something completely different to say about someone's faith, you'll remember the story in Matthew 8, when Jesus entered Capernaum and the centurion came asking for help. The Lord, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said, should I come and should I heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and I tell this one come and he comes and I tell my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and he said to those around him, overhearing this conversation. Truly, I tell you, I've never found anyone in Israel with such great faith. So what is it about the centurion's faith that is great, unequaled by any that Jesus had ever seen compared to the disciples who were with him every day? And yet he, they were told, ye of little faith. You know, in, in looking at this, I'd one, one way we could look at this is the centurion's faith is focused and singular, even in a moment of distress over his servant. We're not even sure how much this centurion knew of Jesus. Likely, it wasn't, whatever it was, it was not as deep as what the disciples knew. Like his exposure to Jesus was just not what the disciples had. And yet, he didn't waver. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that if Jesus were willing, he could fix the situation in a moment. And he could do it from a, a long way away. You know the famous uh, chapter in Hebrews, chapter 11, known as the, the faith chapter. I think it helps us in our understanding a little bit. It gives us a definition, at least, an, another definition of biblical faith. Let's look at this together. Hebrews 11, there'll be a couple of verses that we'll look at the beginning. It'll be on the screens for you. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were com commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. You know, this chapter goes on to just tell story after story to name faith hero after faith hero by name. And they're kind of starting at the beginning, going through the Old Testament, naming characters and explaining how their hope and their assurance in God sustained them through all kinds of challenges and opened them all to all kinds of miraculous experiences. They allowed their minds and their hearts to be opened to God's sustaining power and authority in their daily circumstances. And recognizing God's involvement in their lives, this caused their faith to grow. It perpetuated, it fed on itself, allowing their faith to become more focused and singular, much like that of the centurion. You know, but a temptation for us, I think, it may be a temptation. Maybe it's just a temptation for me. Maybe you guys can identify with this. But, you know, it, it may be tempting to feel like this kind of faith, this complete assurance in God's ability and availability to meet our needs, either by provision or sustaining us through difficult circumstances. It's tempting that this kind of faith somehow is diminished if we can reason out how a solution is going to come. Does that make sense? If, in other words, if, hey, look, I've got this problem and I know exactly how it can be met. And if I work hard enough, I can meet that need. That somehow that's no longer the Lord working in us. That's our own self-reliance. We might feel that if we can reason out where the sack of potatoes came from or where the bag of rice came from, then God had nothing to do with their existence. But I think this is wrong. In our modern empirical world, it's tempting to feel that our faith is either absolute, uh, is either, I'm sorry, not absolute, is obsolete or at odds with what we know or have experienced. But I think the encouragement for me as I've been preparing this and maybe an encouragement for you is not to fall into this trap. This is the exact line of thinking that over and over Jesus corrected in his disciples. Belief and faith in God is not negated when you understand that water and nutrients and minerals and sun all combine allowing a seed to germinate into a fruit-bearing tree. It's still amazing. And it's still a sign of God's sustaining of creation. Our faith should be bolstered when we recognize the sustaining power of God present in all of creation. In his book of nature, 
just as it is alive in our minds through Scripture. You know, this is a little side note, but celebrity pastors, you've probably heard this, and even that term is loaded, I'm sorry. Celebrity pastors have at times taught us to be suspicious of science. Meanwhile, celebrity scientists at times have taught us to be suspicious of faith. You know, but I think as we look deeply at this, as we open our eyes, neither suspicion need be true. There's a podcast that I enjoy called The Trinity Forum. It's very intellectual. They have deep conversations. Uh, But I was listening to an episode kind of preparing for this sermon aptly named Faith in an Empirical World. You know, and it was encouraging to hear they were interviewing two different scientists who have thought about this, who have spent years and years of their own research investigating this idea, writing papers, writing books on the coexistence of faith and science. They directly met this head on saying there's no need to separate our reason and our knowledge with the power of God. It was also encouraging to hear these two folks deeply embedded in the field of science saying things like, you know, Christians generally think that scientists are atheists. That's not true. The majority of my peers believe in God. The majority of my peers recognize that there's a sustaining power in the universe. And that doesn't negate that we can look and see how things have happened. Anyway. You know, it should be no surprise to us that the earth is sustained by the Lord. And it should be no surprise to us that God is encouraging us to remember and to believe and to trust that he not only will care for the earth, care for his creation, but he'll care for us. And he encourages us to join in that work, to be a part of his restoration and sustaining and care for all things. May we constantly remind ourselves of the things that we know to be true about Jesus. Even when we're panicked, when we're tired, when we're stressed, may we constantly remind ourselves of the things we know to be true of God. And may that increase our faith. May that bolster our faith. You know, we we recognize great faith when we see it. Many of us have experienced great faith in our own hearts, in our own lives, but many of us have also experienced moments of discouragement when we thought we had complete trust in God to help us. And yet when we panicked, it slipped away in a moment of distress. You know, when this happens, we tend to beat ourselves up pretty good. We tend to be pretty hard on ourselves. We think that because our faith slipped, maybe we never really had it in the first place. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. That's not the way it works. That's not what Jesus was saying. You know what? You never believed me, did you? He didn't say that. He simply reminded them, I've got you taken care of. 
Just as Jesus never tired of reminding his closest friends when they got it wrong, so too I encourage you to feel the loving pull of grace guiding you back into the arms of hope and assurance of the things we do not see. Allow the Holy Spirit to continually sharpen and focus your faith. So the question I was asking myself is, what does centurion-like faith look like for us in 2022? You know, it's certainly not a prescription to get God to do what we want. I think our faith is an antidote, an antidote to the culture of defeat and skepticism that is so prevalent around us. I'd like us to consider a couple questions as we close. These are on your sermon notes here on this back page. You don't have to fill these out now, but I'd encourage you to take these home with you. But just as I read through these, let's consider. How focused is your faith? How focused is your hope and assurance in Jesus? It's all very well to say while we're here in church or maybe when we're in private devotion that he is the son of God, the Lord, the Messiah or whatever. But do we actually treat him as if he's got authority over every aspect of our lives? Second question, when the storm hits, when we're hurt or afraid, do we cling to hope and assurance in God or do we panic, falling into despair and worry? Finally, as we are followers, are we the kind of followers acting in such a way in our participation, in our communities, in our relationships, perhaps in the moments in which we're confronted with evil or things that are just not the way it's supposed to be. Are our bold announcements of the kingdom, are these coming across in such a way that those who see us ask, what sort of people can these be? Is our faith inspiring to others? May we constantly remind ourselves of the things that we know to be true. And may our faith be increased. And may we faithfully engage in the work of God's kingdom in all aspects of our lives. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this moment together, this time in which you've opened our hearts. And Lord, for me, I confess, Lord, that you've challenged me. You've, um, you've encouraged me, even in my own moments, my own realization that God, my faith is weak in areas where I feel like I've got it covered, where I feel like I've got it all reasoned out or where I feel like I can take care of it. God, help me to recognize you in the big, but also in the little, in the routine. May this be a moment of worship in recognizing you in the simple things. And God, as we exercise our faith in that simple way, may it bolster our faith in moments in which things are really bad. Lord, we pray for 
hope and comfort and sustenance in the storm. Lord, some of us are experiencing a season of turmoil or a season of challenge, and it's just really hard. God, we ask that you would lovingly remind us of your care and your grace and your mercy for us. Reawaken our imaginations, Lord, as we see you and your providence in all aspects of our lives and in creation. Inspire us, Lord. Provide us opportunities and moments in which we see you revealed in amazing ways. And Lord, as we see you in these ways, again, we pray that you would allow our faith to be exercised, to be focused, to be honed in. And God, then, as a result, may we trust, Lord, that your love, your mercy, your redemption, your reconciliation of all creation, of all mankind around us, that this is true and good, and that, Lord, we have a part to play in bringing that redemption and reconciliation to the world around us. May we be participants in your kingdom. Amen.